All right, what's going on, guys? Uh, it's Daniel DeBrock here. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm sitting down today with Dr. Pat Davidson, and we're going to talk about training for strength and athleticism. Now, this is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time because uh, I know that the longer I'm involved in powerlifting, I've noticed that you know my movement quality is just a little bit different. And even doing something like boxing, kind of getting back to my old roots of boxing has been really beneficial for just feeling better and being you know a little bit more athletic, quote unquote. So um, first off, Pat, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's been a little while since we've had you on, but uh, it's always an interesting time uh, when, when we have a conversation. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, I just, I like having conversations with people that really value performance and sports science and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, even with what I'm just hearing you start off with, just talking about kind of like powerlifting and introducing something like boxing to it and where you could feel better. And I just think it's, it's going to lead to something that's going to be interesting conversationally. And I, I like the way in which you, you know, however it goes, I'm always just fascinated with. So, yeah, I, I love this stuff. So can you give a little bit of a background for yourself, for maybe those people who aren't super familiar with you and your work? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a PhD in exercise physiology, a master's degree in strength and conditioning. I've worked in academia. I've worked in, in uh, personal training in Manhattan. I've uh, competed in uh, mixed martial arts, submission wrestling. I've competed in strongman. I've coached athletes in strongman. Um, you know, I've written some books on training. Um, I've, I wrote a book, uh, a coach's guide to optimizing movement that I tried to have be kind of like a really big overarching umbrella, systematic approach to just appreciating what I kind of call now these days, like, uh, ultimately like trainable movement domains and, uh, just sort of be a zoomed out perspective on, the greater landscape and how it all comes together from like a, I don't know, just, just a, a system of systems kind of perspective with that book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'd say that for the most part, like I think my brain works from building models, like just, just systematic models is really probably my, my best offering in terms of what I create professionally. Awesome. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the book as well. And that was actually a big part of our last conversation that we had was kind of talking about some of those models, some of the frameworks. And I was, I was a really, really big fan when I read it because I always enjoyed um, learning sort of about like, I guess the first principles and then the application just kind of like solves itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was definitely, that was definitely what I got from the book. Anyways, it was, it was a really, really interesting read. And I find that I still use a lot of that stuff for program design and just sort of like how I conceptualize, like attacking that whole process. So that, that was, it was a really, really great book. Um, I guess where I wanted to start the conversation was, you know, cause a lot of the people who listen to, to this podcast, a lot of the people that I coach are either powerlifters or, you know, they, they're interested in getting like really jacked, but they have a primary yeah. focus of strength. And right. so, uh, you know, obviously one of the, one of the concerns is when you start introducing new goals into the mix, mm -hmm. we can sort of get this like interference in terms of more so from like a recovery standpoint than, than anything else. And so how would you start out 
by introducing sort of like a multimodal approach to training in a way that's not necessarily going to interfere, or at least, you know, have the, the least amount of interference, then sort of progress that into something that's a little bit more dynamic, potentially, you know, involving like um, bounding or different types of jumps or different types of speed and acceleration work, maybe even sprints, or maybe even like a, a different sport altogether, like, you know, playing uh, boxing or, or rugby. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just think like, Number one, you have to kind of go back to examining things from a principle-based approach. And we're talking specifically about strength, uh, which will be task-specific in some ways. You know, there's probably organism strength in general, and then there's task-specific strength. And if we're talking about powerlifting, there's the three movements in the sport that, that you really care about above and uh, beyond everything else. And so when you think about training principles, it's kind of like you go back to the big rocks of specificity, overload, uh, individual differences and reversibility. Like that to me is like where the conversation always starts. And then you sort of unpack those big principles and think about all the things that fit into them. And so when you talk about specificity, you know, uh, the sport itself is telling you what you have to get good at. You have to get good at squatting, bench press, and deadlift. And you could be good at a million other things in life, and it doesn't matter if you're not good at those things and you care about competing in that sport. So whenever you think about what is the most direct pathway to being able to get better at something, well, you have to do that thing, you know, and you have to do that thing with progressive overload as the, you know, backdrop of how you approach getting better at that thing. Um, and so like, that, that's, that's kind of like the, the first thing was just be like, if you want to get better at shooting a basketball, you probably should shoot the basketball. Uh, if you want to get better at pumping gas, you should pump gas. If you want to get better at squatting, you should probably squat. And then of course, like there will be underlying elements as to what are the building blocks that go into expressing the, these, these factors and, and maybe some rate limiting factors that that will cause stagnation in the development of something along the like of, of the specific tasks that you want to do and so if you look at you know what are the best predictors of strength then like by far and away number one is cross-sectional area of the relevant muscles that are associated with being the prime movers for a particular task so if you want to get better if you want to be able to squat more weight you know, the, the number one predictor of that is going to be cross-sectional area of the muscles that would squat for you. Uh, and so that could be an enormous rate limiting factor for someone is that they just haven't created enough hypertrophy in their squat muscles. And, uh, but it's not the only factor, you know what I mean? It's always kind of like there's, there's multiple factors that at any point in time are contributing to various degrees from a contextual perspective. And it's the relationships between those things. So, if, and it's kind of like, is there an egregious factor that is just jumping out that is so clearly the rate limiter? Uh, it could be technical expression of the movement. It could be uh, an injury history. It could be, um, you know, a, a bad tactical approach to how the person goes about their, their warm up. And like, there's, so there's, there's all these things that you kind of have to unpack inside of that um 
and and I would just say like the big hitters are usually in some way, shape or form, like uh, physiological or psychological or sociological. Uh, you know, those are those are oftentimes these key areas that you can kind of look at. Um, and so it, like I, I think that that's kind of where I would I would initially think about the discussion sort of going. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like when I think about this particular area that I feel like you're kind of getting into of, you know, Hey, I want to build a bigger squat bench press deadlift. And at a certain point if all I do is I just, the only training movements I have are squat bench and deadlift. Like that's going to create a diminishing returns bottleneck at some point. And then once I reach that bottleneck, what do I do? To get around that, I probably should introduce some other things there. And uh, if I introduce the right things in the right sequence, then I'll probably be able to break through that bottleneck and be able to move to a higher level of performance and probably wash, rinse, and repeat the same process over again. But if I introduce the wrong things in the wrong sequence, then I could, in fact, potentially stagnate or worse, go backwards. And uh, so, what kinds of things might be uh, complementary and what kinds of things might be really, um, you know, interfering and, and uh, deleterious. So I, I think that when you start talking about those areas, like there's, there's probably like a comparison of activities that are most similar and activities that are most dissimilar from a spectrum standpoint, and then figuring out like, well, should like what's actually a bigger interference point uh activities that are most dissimilar or activities that are most similar and if i can then look at that is there a dose-based response from dissimilar or similar that would create a bigger level of interference because there's different schools of thought on that i would say like if you go into like the charlie francis school of thought who is developing sprinters he really didn't like the thought of using a lot of weights that were done with high velocities. He was like, no, no, no. Like we want, we probably have this limited energy capacity that's associated with high velocity, high speed activities. And the only thing we care about is sprinting. So we're going to dick, we're going to allow all the vast, vast, vast majority of our training volume that's done at high speed to be done with running. And we don't want to tap into this pool with doing this high velocity weight room stuff. There's other adaptations that we need that are supportive in nature to being able to sprint fast. And some of those things are like cross-sectional area and just force production and neurology that can come from lifting weights that are going to be heavier and slower in the performance. So, you know, he would have looked at there's interference from doing weight room things that are too similar from a velocity perspective to sprinting. And it's going to draw from the limited energy reserves that are associated with training and recovering from high velocity, high rate of force development activities. Uh, so, and on the flip side, it's kind of like, if I'm thinking about sprinting as fast as I can, what would be like the complete opposite? Probably like, sorry about this fire truck that's going by. I don't know if that's coming through. It's all, but, it's all good. I can still hear you clearly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, um, you know, probably walking really slow for long periods of time would be like about as dissimilar as you could get. And if you, you know, if you do a little bit of slow walking, there's probably no interference. 
But if you go out and you walk 40 miles today, you're probably going to be crushed from it. And it's going to really like hamper your ability to sprint really fast. So I would say for the most part, the things that are least interfering are the things that are most different when done at very low levels of volume. And probably the things that are most interfering are things that are very similar that are done at tremendously high levels of volume. Um, and that there's probably like two sorts of sliding scales that you have to be aware of that, mm -hmm. you know, you should probably, you know, I, I think Mike Isertel does an amazing job of discussing these points in the scientific principles of hypertrophy book, where he kind of talks about like, you know, sort of like, Hey, if you want to get, if you want to add muscle tissue, like you have to, be very specific about the training stimuli where it's got to be, you know, targeting the muscles that you want to grow and you have to be within the tension threshold and the volume needs to be uh, between minimum effective and maximum recoverable. And it needs to be progressing over time and there needs to be enough metabolites present and there needs to be enough of a pump and there needs to be enough of a mind muscle connection. And there needs to be, all of these things contribute in some way, shape or form to this. And, you know, if you're trying to do like, I don't remember exactly how it break, he breaks it down, but it's kind of like, do you really want to be doing a ton of playing jujitsu at the same time? You mm -hmm. know, if you do that, like it's like energetically, it's going to be really hard to devote all of this energy towards hypertrophy based resistance training and doing a ton of jujitsu at the same time. Like if you do something like your other activity is like very easy cardio, there's very little interference from that. It's like very, very, very different. And he's got it all kind of classified and categorized. And it's a better rendition of what I'm trying to say uh, from a highly pinpointed specific way of discussing the topic. But I think that I'm trying to capture some of the big hitter pieces of it where it's like, you know, you ultimately have to identify the primary thing that you're trying to train. And it's what I find interesting is if it is increasing your performance in squat, bench, and deadlift, that at various points in time, there are rate limiters inside of that. And you have to be accurate in identifying what any particular individual's rate limiter is, and then strategically attack that thing and if you're strategically attacking that thing, let's say it's technical expression of the movements, this might not be a time to try to introduce a high level of training of other technical expressions at the same time. Like, hey, like we're going to learn how to really execute the, the really strong positional requirements of squat, bench press, and deadlift. And simultaneously, I'm going to teach you how to really perfect your golf swing and how to like hit the ball out of the bunker. It's like, you know, I think he points out a similar thing from the perspective of like, if you really want to learn Spanish, you should focus on Spanish and you shouldn't be like doing an hour of Spanish and an hour of Mandarin and an hour of Portuguese uh, in the same yeah. day, because it's going to interfere with your ability to actually learn Spanish. Uh, you should focus on that thing and, and really kind of get it up to a threshold level and then maintain that ability and find some other things that now you can focus on and do just enough to maintain this capability over here and direct your energy towards something else. 
and, and ultimately kind of have like an idea about what sorts of successive blocks make sense building off of each other. Uh, and I like the idea of like learning a language from the comparison of like neurological and technical uh, development of, of trainable movements. It's kind of like even, even within powerlifting, it might not be best use of time to try to simultaneously perfect all three movements at the same time. You might want to have a focused uh, point in time where it's just the squat and you sort of maintain your current technical expression of bench press and deadlift and then transition and maintain your squat technical expression as you focus on one of the other movements. And, um, and maybe it's better to focus on bench press next because there may be some interference of squat versus deadlift technical learning where they might not, and I'm not saying that, I don't know enough about the specific sport and developing the athletes, but I just could see, you know, if I want to develop foreign language competencies, uh, it, I don't, I, I could see like Spanish is a romance language and it's going to have similarities that might be very, it might be really helpful to learn Spanish, a little bit of that before Portuguese. And it might speed up the process of learning Portuguese because there's some, some qualities that feed into it. Uh, and it might be a faster transitional thing than going from Spanish to Mandarin, which is a completely different sort of an animal altogether and no carryover. Um, so I, I don't know if that, if that necessarily helps, but I, I just look at like, I would probably try to create categorical boxes around the fundamentals, the fundamental qualities that need to be in place to drive squat bench and deadlift upwards. And then to think about what is the most strategic sequencing of focus on a certain quality while other qualities are maintained and then sort of going into the next block where I switch my focus and my maintenance uh, variables. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And, and I'm actually a huge fan of, of Mike's debate style of, of teaching as well. He always has like these fantastic examples. Um, the one that you brought up of languages also is, is a really great example. Actually, interesting sidebar. Um, I edited the, the hypertrophy, the principles hypertrophy book um, mm. a while back. So, so that was, that was a really cool project. Uh, that's actually the first time I've ever edited a, a book before. So it was kind of cool, but um, yeah, what, one of the things you said, actually, I like that you started on like, first off, do you have your own program? Correct. Because that's one thing that when I get a new athlete in, a lot of the times, actually, this is funny. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day where, um, you know, I, I had a new athlete come in and they were a strong men athlete and they had this program and then they were like, okay, I want you to do my programming for me. So I started doing the programming and it looked very, very similar. Like what I was doing and what he was doing looked very, very similar. And you can look and see the differences, but they're small. Mm -hmm. But in his program, he was like kind of making progress, kind of not. It was kind of inconsistent. And then on mine, he's just basically been hitting PRs every single week. And you look at them and they're very, very similar. But I just took out a lot of the junk, which basically mm -hmm. allowed him to recover better, to allocate his energy much more effectively in the movements that are actually driving performance and then take away some of the other fluff. And yes, I did make some changes in terms of how we were undulating things. 
But when you look at them, they're really damn similar, which yeah. is really funny because you look at the difference between a good program, like a very good program, and a program that doesn't really deliver that much results, and they're not that different. It might be the difference between like an extra set sometimes in a squat, depending on how high level the guy is, right? Yeah. And, and, and what they can recover from. And so I really liked you started there and you were just like, hey, you know, first let's get your shit right. And once you're doing that, then we can figure out what's going on. And, and the one thing that I also liked as well was um, how you talked about sort of scaling volume on the new activity. So funny story for myself, when I started boxing again, this was like several months ago, um, I used to be a high-level amateur boxer. I was a, a champion <clears throat> way, way back then. And I, but I used to fight at 165, right? Mm -hmm. Now I'm 270. So there's a bit of a difference there, right? Yeah. And, and so my strength is obviously way higher, but my body's not prepared to move in those ways. So like I'm still, I can still move in those ways, but physically I'm just not prepared for it. So I go in, I do some light sparring with my buddy, like literally just light. I go to throw a pump fake left and come over with a, with a, like a close tight hook. And I tore my oblique, right? Because, and it's like, th there was nothing really crazy about that. And then after that, that was just such a great reminder. Like, Hey, I've really got to be like, pay attention to what I'm actually doing. And it was funny because then when I actually started slowly integrating the training back in, I was doing like one day a week and I would, I would do like only 40% power. I would do some like calf raises and things like that. And they're like, why are you doing this stuff? And I'm like, because I don't want to go in too fast. And it took me about a month to get to actually skipping again, which, which might sound stupid, but it's like that impact, that repetitive strain on your Achilles is brutal when you're, when you're as heavy as I am. So it took me about a month to be able to get back to skipping. And I was only skipping for about a minute at a time. And then I'd take about two minutes rest or else it was just like, I just couldn't do anything else to my calves would cramp up. And so it took me a long time to just be able to skip for one minute at a time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that took like, yeah, like months basically. And it was really funny how that whole process worked. And it was directly obviously related to the amount of volume that I was actually incorporating. And then even just different rotational movements, um, like my shoulders, my hands, my elbows, because obviously I'm bigger so I can hit harder, but I'm not prepared for it. So there's like, you know, how much force I'm generating versus how efficiently I'm actually generating the force and how my body's sort of absorbing and dealing with the shock of that. And, and so it was kind of an interesting little like experiment or whatever for, for cross training for me. Um, and it was a really great reminder. And actually ever since then, that was what sort of inspired me. I was like, Hey, I really want to talk about this and learn a little bit more about this. So I love everything you said, especially like kind of starting with that, that foundation of, of what do you actually need? What specific, what's having the most transference, what's going to actually have, the least amount of resistance in terms of your actual progression and your primary uh, focus. So once someone has that set, um, cause I know like there's, there's a couple things that I know powerlifters, at least in the circles that I talk about or talk, talk to um, sort of struggle with one is uh, just sort of moving a little bit more dynamically, whether it's like, if you're playing football, being able to cut, being able to change direction, that's kind of a big one. Another one is jumping right? So box jumps, like you get these guys who are crazy strong, but they never train it. So they can't really do that, you know? Um, yeah. So incorporating that type of a little bit more dynamic type training, just to kind of narrow the focus a little bit, because sure. rather than talking about tennis or boxing or all that stuff, yeah. so how can we kind of move into that? And then also rotational based movements as well. So I, I think that um, 
a couple of things come to mind. Like, number one, do you need to do those things? And like, not necessarily, I would say, you know what I mean? Like there no, may sorry, this is just more for like, for, for fun and just feeling. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. 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 Not necessarily for All right. Fun. Well, so, okay. I think that anyone like you, anyone can do anything. It's like, well, what's the reason that you're doing it? If the expressed uh, intent behind it is fun, it's kind of like, all right, cool. Uh, that's, that's great. Like, but let's appreciate the ways in which that might impact other things that you also care about and let's scale it appropriately. And I think that the lessons learned that you talked about with like, Hey, reintroducing boxing and like, or like you throw like an easy hook and it's like your oblique tears or you try to do some like stuff that you used to do and like your calves cramp after 30 seconds. And it's like, I totally get that because of trying to reintroduce sprinting into my own life and starting it at, you know, five foot, six inches tall, 230 pounds. And that just being like a really difficult modality to reintroduce with that level of body mass respective yeah. to height and the like body weight changes everything about like the impacts and the absorption and the, the effects on the system. Um, and it, like, don't believe me, throw on a 50 pound weight vest and try to do some of those things and see how long you last. Like it's, it, it will point it out to you. I know that when my wife was pregnant, and was much heavier and we tried to go hiking she was having all the problems that i would usually have where it's like oh my god my quads are just like can't bend my legs like what's happening or you know calves or low back pump or whatever and it's like i gotta take a breather like i'm getting shut down by this region of my body you know and so again it's kind of like you end up with these rate limiters so it's sort of like you have to understand i i even from personal training, like you get weird things that emerge from working with regular people who do like, you know, I, I had a guy who, you know, he kept being, coming in on like Mondays or something and be like, Hey, I've got this thing. Like it was an IT band problem over and over again. Like I can't do the training movements because I have this IT band thing. And it's like, well, what are you doing over the weekend? It's like, oh, I did some paddle boarding and then I did some weeding in the garden and the, and then, but like it, with unpacking it, it's like, well, uh, how much paddle boarding were you doing? And it's like, like six hours or something like that. And it's like, oh, okay, well, this is like a factor that we have to consider. And like you, you unpack it and it's like this paddle boarding was driving the show when it came to this. And it's, he, it's kind of like having this conversation of, of him being like, I love doing this. Like it takes my mind off of life and I'm just on the water and there's sun and it's like soothing. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to understand that it's also reflecting over here now and we're dealing with the consequences of that. And I don't want to take this away from you by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I don't want to be this dude that comes into your life and is like, hey, man, you got you got to take this part of your life up. I was just sort of having the, the statement of like, I don't even mind if we train less. I just don't want I don't think you like being in pain. I don't want to be part of what's contributing to you being in pain. And I think if I was to take just a big mathematical spreadsheet of your total movement and throw it on a board, somehow, some way, we are over a threshold level and you're now existing in this state. And we need to basically systematically back off 
until we create a new scenario where you're not existing in that anymore. And now we can have a pretty good idea of how to toggle these different switches and see how much you actually can handle. Like I need to ultimately sensitize you by doing less to the point where we're no longer in this state. And now we have a bit more of a blank slate to reintroduce and assess. And now we can move forward and understand how much of any of these things we can do and how much, if I increase the toggle on this one over here, it'll affect all these other things. And to me, this is a bit of a universal principle. Like if you're working with a therapist from psychology and your life is in shambles, oftentimes they'll try to remove as many parts of your life that are stressors as possible. Hey, maybe we got to think about quitting your job. Maybe we got to think about getting out of this relationship. Maybe we got to think about, you know, you living alone. Maybe we got to think about, you know, uh, your friends and like, they, they kind of will bring you to a place where it's just like, maybe you're bored. Maybe you're like in, in a very like, but you have taken out all the stressors and now you can begin to reintroduce. I think it's a very similar approach to what people like, uh, you know, Stu McGill might do as well, where it's kind of like, Hey, we're going to take away all the hammers that have been like creating exacerbations and problems. And we're going to bring you to this very low non-stimulated state. And from here, we're going to reintroduce and we're going to give you just a little bit. We're going to see what that tastes like now that we're in this very sensitive state to be able to examine responses. And so very similar here, I think, is what I think about this notion of like, hey, I got a power lifter and you know what kind of sucks is being a power lifter because you do like fucking three movements and you bring them to like the Mount Everest of development and a lot of the other physical elements of your life sort of go into the Mariana's Trench because it's like, I can't turn, I can't shift. Like, I'm just like a refrigerator with arms and legs sticking off of it. And uh, I don't like tying my shoes or, you know, anything. Like, it's just a lot of other movements become super hard based on, like, what has happened to you from an adaptation standpoint. And so now it's like, well, you know, what feels better in life is doing some other shit, okay? Like, you know, I like throwing a Frisbee because it feels better than fucking deadlifting right now at this point in my life. And, but I, you know, Hey, I went out and I, I played Frisbee and catch with my buddy for, you know, two hours at the beach. And like my flat is like ravaged as a result of this. Uh, what happened? Like, I really finally enjoyed myself moving for the first time in months, but like now I'm kind of fucked up from it. And it's like, well, yeah, let's, let's figure out even from a, you know, a load management perspective, how much fun you can have without it sort of taking away from other areas. Cause like, you know, I, I've seen people try to reintroduce certain jumps and like, like broad jumps or long jumps, whatever you want to call them. Uh, that will wreck you, particularly if you're heavy. Like if you go out and you do two sets of eight, you might wake up the next day with the most sore tibialis anterior you've ever had just from eating the landing on those things. Like the eccentric slowing down, of moving into more dorsiflexion, that TA, man, like it's going to be screaming and it might be sore for like weeks. If you haven't done anything like that and you are a large human and you've created a lot of like force production and internal resistance to 
a lot of your own movement. Um, so it's, it's like you have to be, and, and look, like I just would say that in general, the more you've moved yourself towards any realm of fitness and you've gone super far into specificity, like it sucks. I don't care what realm of fitness it is. It sucks to go that far into specificity. If you're a mile, mile runner and like you're one of the best in the world at running the mile, every time you run the mile hard, it's probably the worst feeling in the entire world. You know, it's like, well, in training today, I have like my whole training today is I'm going to run the mile twice and both times has to be three minutes and 55 seconds to three minutes and 48 seconds. Like that's just, and um, that probably brings you like to within like millimeters of your physiological limits and kind of feels like you're dying. And like, why would you ever do that to yourself? And guess what? Because it's a fitness quality, I have to progressively overload it. And next week, it means that I have to be between this window of like three minutes and 52 seconds and three minutes and 45 seconds. And if it's, you know what I mean? Like, it probably is the worst experience that you could ever imagine. The same as like, hey, I'm an elite heavyweight power lifter. And today I have back squat and there's like sets that I have 935 pounds for my work sets. Like, that's got to be the worst feeling in the world. I can't even imagine that. Like your whole skeleton is just like getting crushed under this. And you can't even imagine it being worse, but it's like, hey, actually, it's got to be progressively overloaded. And next week has to be 940 pounds. And it's like, oh, no. So there's all these things in the body that will fight back against specific progressive overload. And it's almost like, well, how much can your organism tolerate that level of deviation from comfort? And there's just different rate limiters that will probably push back on you. And, um, and anything that you can do that is divergent from that, that is not specific to this horrendous level of stress that's required to actually be developmental for this realm of fitness that you've literally taken to a Mount Everest level of development. It's such a gnarly level of stress that like the, the tolerance to it just decreases over time. And it's like, how desensitized can you make yourself and experience that level of, of stress? Like, and that's the individual differences part from a principal's perspective in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny actually, because a lot of the times too, when, when thinking about these things, I've noticed that people will, you know, when, when I was starting out, I was the same way. You, you'll look at something in isolation and say, is that difficult? You know, like you might see someone squatting, and they're doing, you know, a certain amount of weight for a certain amount of reps. And you're like, oh, that's really impressive. But, you know, I'm almost there. I can, I can, you know, maybe do a few reps shy of that. And he's really good. So I must be pretty similar. And it's like, yeah, but he's doing that after his deadlifts, after six weeks of training when fatigue is, you know what I mean? And so it's like mm -hmm. these things don't exist in isolation. And so if you're, if you're going for a run, you might be like, oh, yeah, you know, mile run, that's not too bad. I could easily do that. Why, why not just start like two or three miles? You know, it's going to be really easy. But then you're like, okay, but you're also training. When you used to do that before, were you also lifting like this? Were you, did you have that high output and all that stuff? So it's, it's interesting when you start thinking of things a little bit more like holistically as opposed to just sort of in like little separate buckets that don't actually have any sort of communication with each other. 
Yeah. And so, um, in, in terms of, uh, I guess, managing, managing training volume, like even one thing I, I do coach a couple athletes, for instance, who are predominantly strength athletes, but they also are, are in the military. And so every now and then they have to go in and do testing. They have to do runs. They have to do rucks with like, you know, 50, 70, 80 pound, you know, um, of, of gear on, on their back. And so that obviously changes things. And so, um, even for some of these individuals, you know, they'll be like, oh yeah, well, I used to run. And you always, you always kind of seem to remember where you were at when you were at your peak. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. where you're comparing yourself. I remember I definitely did that when I was boxing and I was like, oh, I could easily do this. And I was like, oh no, I cannot. And yeah. it's, it's pretty humbling pretty quickly. And, and so I remember like I had them, I, I took off one of their actual resistance training days because we actually had to do a fair amount of volume for running and for the specific, like, the specific type of training they were doing was actually fairly intensive for, for the army. And so um, we were getting them to do rucks. We had to get them to do like some, some kind of isometrics, yielding eccentrics, different things like that to really just build up some resiliency in their lower body. And, um, and one of the things that I had him doing was just a run, but it was like, I started him off with one mile, very slow pace. And then he would do one mile later in the week at a moderate pace. And that was it. And he was like, this is really easy. And I'm like, okay, are you feeling good? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, is your training still going well? Yeah. Are you improving in all the metrics that are really important for your army? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, but it just feels really easy. I'm like, okay, so what's the objective here? Is the objective to feel like you got a good workout or is the objective to perform? And a lot of the times people conflate those things. And I have athletes do that quite often, actually, where they're like, hey, like, I just feel like this is a little easy. I feel like, you know, my, my, I'm doing way less volume than when I was training on my own. And I was like, okay, well, how was training on your own? Were you getting these results? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, you're not supposed to feel fucking beat up all the time. Like you should feel, and um, other people might disagree with this, but I'm a big believer in like, you should feel fresh. Like, yeah, you're going to feel stiff. Yeah. You're going to all that stuff. Sure. Whatever. You're going to be a little sore, not a big deal, but you should feel good going into your training, you know? And if you can stack up like just successful day over successful day over successful day, I really struggle to, to see how you wouldn't get stronger or build more muscle or become faster or be more explosive or whatever, you know? And so, so it's like, it doesn't necessarily need to be this like big, crazy thing. And, and I think just respecting the fact that it does take a little bit of, of time to actually adapt to a new thing you haven't done, even if you used to do it at a very high level, if you haven't mm-hmm. done it, man, that, that's, that's a difficult transition, especially with the additional wear and tear of what you are doing at the moment. Yeah, I just look at it like, you know, how far developed is this thing? And you just have these different qualities that exist. And if something is very much not developed, it's very easy to develop that in the initial stages. If something is incredibly developed and near the limits of where you currently are from your ability to improve that thing, it's probably going to suck to do whatever it is that's necessary to develop that thing. And, um, and that might be where it's like, Hey, look, like we're, we're going to work at developing this quality and it's going to be horrendous, but let's just lock in for six weeks and we're going to see how much you can tolerate. And then we're going to maintain it after that. And maintenance should be pretty easy, but it's, I just, I just think like there's newbie gains and newbie gains are super easy and even if someone is like incredibly beyond belief, 99th percentile of 
a specific kind of fitness. Like if someone is super, super strong, you know, like totals fucking 3000 pounds, they might have newbie gains when it comes to aerobic fitness. And it's kind of like, we need to do very little to be able to drive the adaptive machinery that's taking place on the aerobic side of the puzzle. Like yeah. it might literally be like a 15 minute walk mm-hmm. twice a week. And that creates adaptations that are measurable, demonstrable and significant within this area of fitness. And why would you ever do more than you have to, if you're getting results? Like it's just that sometimes that which gets results is horrifically bad. And that which gets results is amazingly easy and like hardly even it's like not a big deal at all and just appreciate that that's just indicative of how far like what mile marker are you on on the highway towards uh the development of that particular quality yeah 100 that's definitely something that i've noticed as well with with even myself right like and i guess I, i i think this was I think actually Mike was, was the one who kind of explained it this way was he was like, you know, if you have a life bar and if you're, if you're like X amount advanced, like just super advanced, you know, having a huge total, like you've got a over 2000 pound total, you know, you're going to have to, in order to progress, you're going to have to dedicate at least like 98% of your energy to that one thing, or else it just won't be sufficient to drive that adaptation. And so now you've got 2% of a reserve, you know, so you got to be really, really meticulous in terms of how you allocate that additional energy or, you know, you just, it'll just be a little bit too much and you just won't be able to progress. And it's sometimes it can be that much. I mean, it's, you got to be super elite for it to be obviously something like that, but I mean, there's plenty of super elite people out there. And even just from like a perspective, like a, a sort of concept standpoint, like it stands to reason that it is something you do need to pay attention to obviously. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. So in terms of plyometrics, I guess, um, because that's something that I know uh, a lot of people, well, a lot of the guys from my gym are, are like monstrous. Like I'm 270. I'm very much average size over there. <laughs> like everyone mm-hmm. else, just a bunch of freaking monsters over there. Yeah, I get it. You're just in Jurassic Park. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Even the women are just super jacked. And so, um, you know, it's funny because we're all strong. So when we do things, you can be like, oh, like I can see the potential for, for jumping. I can see the potential for sprinting, but because mm-hmm. of the movement skill, like the competency in those movements is just so low, right? Yeah. Um, you, you don't see it really expressed, but you see them jump and they just kind of float and you're like, oh, whoa. Like if you actually learned how to jump properly, you could, you could have like a crazy vertical. So how, how um, can you give like a little bit of a breakdown maybe just in terms of obviously it's going to be very broad, but just in terms of like, you know, things that are maybe a little bit more fatiguing uh, and yeah. then scaling that down just so people can kind of have an idea where to start. You did a great job with, with like walking versus running and sprinting and things like that. So, yeah, you know, I look at when I'm trying to develop um, and I, I break plyometrics down into like large amplitude displacements versus small amplitude displacements, like pogos versus jumps in some ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and so if we're talking about large amplitude displacements, like really kind of like maximal jumping for height or for distance and trying to develop some of the plyometric qualities that would 
lead you towards that, that trajectory. You know, I, 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 you know what, like in, in my system, I have the 10 principles of progression and I just apply those things across all trainable domains. And so it's, you know, how do I, like, how do I start? And to me, the start is the most important thing. If I start you in the right way, it builds the underlying concept. And then I can take that concept in, in, in many ways. So I have people start static. I have them start with a bilateral stance. I have them start in the sagittal plane. I have them start with short levers. I have them start by minimizing the, uh, you know, managing gravity. I have them start with, um, you know, more references, more constraints, more reactive neuromuscular training, minimal training load. And, uh, that's nine of them. I don't, you know, sometimes I forget which ones I said, which ones I don't, but that's enough talking points. So it's kind of like, well, if I'm starting and, and some of them are like, well, what do you mean? Start static. We're talking about jumping. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm really talking about the landing more than anything. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to just learn how to stick the landing and become very still like, and, and I also want to minimize the impact of managing gravity. And so if I combine those two notions, the first thing that I want to do is a box jump and I want to just jump up and really work on landing properly. Because when I think of plyometrics, it's not even the jump that you're currently doing that I'm really all that interested in. It's the next jump because a plyometric has to have the stretch shortening cycle of eccentric to isometric to concentric in terms of like, you know, absorption catching and redirecting the the forces but if you can't absorb and stop well then that's like just the first the first line of approaching this thing so i want to have you jump up and i'm taking gravity out of the equation by having you do a box jump because you're not accelerating back towards the ground you're just going up there's like a zero acceleration or deceleration point at the top of the jump and you're just landing there so it's a lot easier to manage gravity. It's going to be a sagittal plane, bilateral stance, jump and landing. And, um, you know, it's minimal load. It's shorter levers. Like I'm not going to have you land in a position where you're like in a super deep squat. I want it to just be athletic position at the top in a very manageable place for you to, to land and, and learn how to be in a good spot to be able to, again, do the next jump. And then I would just be systematically taking these things away over time. We're going to go from, you know, we're going to make managing gravity more difficult. So I might lower the height of the box as a progression. Like everybody's always trying to raise the damn box. I'm like, no, no, no. The point is to let the person absorb more force at the, at the landing point. So you do that by actually having, you know, you, if you really wanted to make it, you'd have a deficit. Like you'd jump over something and then the ground is lower on the other side that's really like and that's kind of the premise of like depth drops and depth jumps but it's it's much more on how much can you eat initially and then from going from static to dynamic we might be going through through this process and i use the process of we're going to stick the landing and then we learn to uh on the landing create a little bounce like and then after the bounce to jump as high as you possibly can and then after that, we take away that little bounce. So you're just repeat jumping. And then we go from there to 
dropping you off of heights and again, going through the same process, absorbing and then dropping you off, bouncing and jumping and then just repeat jump. So, you know, I, I just look at it again, like I, the, I think that uh, I make bad decisions on the fly and in the moment and I have a bad memory. So I just try to write everything down and I stick with exactly the principles that I wrote down. So, and if I just follow those principles, they just tell me how it should unfold. So I would start with, you know, these, these bilateral stance, sagittal plane jumps. And then the next kind of jump I would introduce after the person's competent is a front back stance, uh, sagittal plane jump. And that has two categories, single leg jumps and split squat jumps. And then uh, after the person's competent with the similar kind of progression in terms of difficulty of exercise because it follows the same thing box jump to uh you know jump to stick on the ground to jump to bounce to jump to jump 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 to depth drop to depth jump that's always like kind of how it unfolds inside of every uh domain um but then once the person's competent in front back stance sagittal plane then i would go to bilateral stance frontal plane uh, then I would go to front back stance, frontal plane, lateral stance, frontal plane. Then I go to bilateral stance, transverse plane, front back stance, transverse plane, and lateral stance, transverse plane. Uh, with all of these things having the, like, it's kind of like I have principles that are inside of larger principles. And the largest principle is the principle of ground and there being two kinds of ground, external ground and internal ground. And external ground are just surfaces and objects that are immovable that you can push against to create force. Like a leg press, for instance, is a super high external ground uh, exercise because you have a backrest, you have a seat, you have handles. And with that amount of external ground, you're able to produce the highest level of prime mover uh, force that you can imagine. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's like these clear and obvious low external ground exercises, like a, I don't know, uh, rear foot elevated in a TRX strap split squat, where it's like, I have no anchor from the external environment. And as a result, I'm required to create internal ground which is based on stiffening parts of my body so that they don't move while other parts move relative to those things. And um, I just look at it like uh, you have different developmental trajectories where some athletes want a significant amount of muscle mass acquisition. And I usually keep them more on the side of high external ground activities. And then other act athletes should not receive a lot of hypertrophy development and they need high expressions of motor control in free environments with low uh, load characteristics. So kind of like uh, from a popular sport perspective, interior line play in football versus clay court tennis, where it's like, you know, clay court tennis, the ground itself is fucking slippery and there's nothing around you. Your racket weighs a few ounces. The ball weighs a few ounces. And the best in the world have very little muscle mass, but they have incredible expressions of range of motion at high velocities 
in a multi-planar expression of those things mm-hmm. versus for interior line play in football, you have to be large, muscular, and able to manipulate large forces that are outside of you. And the characteristic development physiologically of, the, of those two sports are very different from each other. So uh, within the system that I created, it progresses you by, char- by essentially identifying things that would be examples of external ground. A bilateral stance uh, gives you more external ground to interact with as compared to a front back stance based upon base of support characteristics, which is, you know, more external ground to interact with than a lateral stance, uh, you know, constraints, references, uh, all of those things ultimately come under the domain of external ground uh, providence. And then if I systematically strip that away, I'm asking you to remain competent with motor execution with far less external ground that requires you to create your own internal ground. But simultaneous to that, your prime movers ultimately express lower peak forces uh, that would be associated with probably the adaptive engines uh, that that kind of revolve around the hypertrophy response. Mm -hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's a really, really clear progression sequence for for plyometrics for just sort of movement competency in general and then even just tissue tolerance obviously um for a lot of those movements i, I think that makes a lot of sense and uh yeah. i'm gonna steal steal a couple of those things for, for some yeah. of my clients as well you know like when i think about like all right what is probably like some of the highest expressions of plyometrics in sports and what do the athletes look like you know, honestly, like if I were to think about what is the most free expressive form of aerial manipulation, and it's probably high diving, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I look at those athletes, what are the characteristics? Like they, they don't have tremendous amounts of muscle mass. They're like slightly built humans that are able to turn and twist and like uh, maneuver in space with literally zero feedback. They're in the fucking air, just spinning around and twisting. Mm-hmm. And like other athletes that are probably similar, like skateboarders and snowboarders. And, uh, and they have like this, they, they just have zero external ground that they're interacting with. And they're the best in the world at expressing movement in zero external ground versus the, all, the other side of the spectrum which would be like, I would say probably, you know, interior football line, powerlifting, uh, sumo wrestling, those kinds of activities where it's like the highest amount of external ground uh, associated with it. And how do those individuals move? And it's like, you just couldn't have more of a different, like elite super heavyweight powerlifters versus elite X game skateboard half pipes. It's like, these are different creatures. They might as well be a different species from each other. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you want to be good at either of them, you should be as different as the people that are good in the other one as you possibly could be. Yeah. 
No, that definitely makes sense. So I know we're coming up on that uh, on that hour mark, um, and I want to be respectful of your time. So where can people find you? Yeah, I, um, you know, I'm terrible with that part of things. Like I, you know, I, I think that there's a website at this point in time. I honestly don't even know. I have a business manager that handles all the stuff that I don't like to handle. I was actually talking with my therapist about this yesterday where I'm so bad at certain parts of life and I've just always compensated by trying to be hyper uh, productive in one realm. You know what I mean? Like uh, I was talking specifically going all the way back to like, you know, high school with baseball, like, eh, I don't really have to show up for class because I'm good enough at baseball. I don't really have to do homework because I'm good enough at baseball. And I've just carried that on to other parts of my life as I've gone through it. <laughs> I don't know how I got there. Uh, but anyways, I do know that my Instagram and the bio link will is linked to everything that is relevant for me. Um, and, you know, there's kind of like the major products that I have, which are like training side of the spectrum. I've got the athletic weapon training program and that's an online program concept. And then I have the education stuff and that primarily revolves around uh, the rethinking the big patterns seminars and book and like the the whole certification stuff that, that kind of rides in that land. And you can find both of those trees in the, in the Instagram bio link. So that's the easiest way as far as I know. And I'm at, at Dr. Pat Davidson. It's, DR period Pat Davidson. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give Pat a follow. Uh, he posts out tons of great content on the regular basis and make sure you check out the book, check out some of his uh, educational content. It's really, really awesome stuff. I've definitely learned a ton and really enjoy it. Pat, thanks so much for jumping on, man. I really appreciate the chat. I do too, man, because I'll tell you what, like we're able to get into some of these areas that I feel like are uh, conceptually very specific. And I don't know if other people talk about this stuff, you know? So I, I hope that it is different and unique for listeners to be able to be like, Oh, okay. This is like a, I haven't heard somebody talk about this concept this way before that gives me something new to think about, but it only emerges from the right questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as I was saying, even before we, uh, before we started recording, like, I always find these conversations interesting because they're a little bit more like conceptual in nature and from like a, a first principle standpoint, which in my opinion, like if you really get a good grasp on these things, the level of application is just so, so expansive. And, and that's always what I've enjoyed learning versus like, you know, okay, what macros do you need to, it's like, okay, sure. Understand macros, understand, you know, this training, like what is front squat good for? But instead of understanding what front squat is good for, maybe try understanding like, okay, what sort of movement competency is required for this. And then you can just look at what modalities are going to best solve that problem or do that, you know? And, and so mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed learning from, from that perspective, as opposed to like maybe a top down perspective, I guess you might call it. I don't know, but, um, but I yeah. Just look, I kind of look at it as like cut and paste cookie cutter versus uh, fluid system yeah yeah exactly um but anyways man really really great to have you here thanks so much for jumping on man thank you